Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast, along with Jim Callis from the home office in Winnetka, Illinois. I'm John Manuel. Thanks so much for joining us here, downloading us, whether it's at BaseballAmerica.com or on iTunes. I want to remind you that we're brought to you by the MLB Network, and you can get a special four issues for $4 deal. It's our special MLB Network offer. That's available at BaseballAmerica.com backslash MLB Network. And, Jim, uh, you know, actually, uh, I can stop talking about your appearance on MLB Network and talk about my own. I was very happy to be on there Saturday at the Rising Stars game out in Arizona. That was a lot of fun. And uh, got to spend an inning and a half on the air with uh, Dave Valley and Darren Sutton, and that was a, a fun game. Uh, kind of like the Futures game, but uh, I think people need to remember that that's played in November, and most players are not at their best in November. But it was fun to see, good to see a lot of those players in person, and uh, glad we did not have extra innings as Leslie Anderson ended it with a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth. Talk about the the opposite of what you usually think about in a rising star or a features game or a 29-year-old Cuban defector. But I was glad Leslie Anderson was there because he kept us from going to 10 or 11 innings. Would they have, had, would they have played extra innings? Cause I know with the futures game, they just don't have enough pitching. I, my, my understanding is with the futures game, we would just end in a 9-9 tie. They had what's called the Robinson tie. rule. <laughs> they kept calling about talking about the Robinson rule. I, their maximum was 11 innings. Mike Guerrero told us before the game, he's one of the managers, that they were planning for an 11-inning game. So that meant all their pitchers didn't get in. That meant they didn't all get in. But they only had one pitcher left, I think, when the, you know, when the game ended. So both teams went to their bullpens early and often. And you know, some good things to see. I don't think you can read too much into it, but it's cool to see Mike Montgomery and Manny Benuelos as your two starters. It was cool to see Jeremy Jeffers at 101 miles an hour. It was very cool to see Brandon Belt uh, play well and look good and uh, and a lot of talent in one place. And uh, I think very disappointing to see that Bryce Harper was not there, but I did get a chance to see Harper play the night before. And I wrote an article about it at BaseballAmerica.com. It's free. It's on the Prospects blog. I recommend you check it out because I think it talks about uh, something other than Bryce Harper's tools. It talks about his effort. And the makeup was questioned before the draft, Jim. And <laughs> I didn't even plan on this being a podcast topic. But I'm going to tell you, after seeing him in the fall league, even if it was just one game, and talking to people out there about him, I don't think I would take Anthony Rendon ahead of Bryce Harper. I think we sold Bryce Harper's hit tool a little short. And I think we sold him a little short, to be honest with you, uh, trying to temper the hype. I almost feel like I almost went the other direction. I, if, the 2000, if Bryce Harper had been in the 2011 draft, and things go the way we think they're going to go, and Anthony Rendon comes back healthy from his ankle injury and has a great year, I still think Bryce Harper's tools measure up better, and I think they measure up better by a decent amount, enough so that I think even though he's a right fielder versus a third baseman for Rendon, I think I'd take Harper over Rendon. I think you could certainly debate it either way. It's, uh, you know, I, mean, I heard a lot of the same thing. And again, I mean, maybe there was some, some Harper backlash or some – even some Scott Boris backlash, but when I mean, we did talk to some scouts, you know, I think a number of them who I don't think anybody questions that Harper is going to hit for power. And you hate when I do this, but I'll continue to label him the best power prospect in the draft era. I don't, I don't, I don't hate it when, I, when you do that because now you're proving my point. So now I'm on it. <laughs> well, so I, I said, I've said that all along. So, I mean, you I, have. I just, I've come around to your way of thinking. I, you know, I, I'm, you know, who hits? You know, I, I think he's got. You know, there is going to be some swing and miss because I do think he. You know, from what we've heard, you know, he does have a swing that's geared toward power. But, you know, again, I mean, that's the fun thing about prospect debates is I think you could defend either way. I still think, you know, unless he's not healthy enough, Rendon gets to the big leagues first. And, you know, I know you wrote about his work ethic. I don't think anybody's ever debated Harper's work ethic. I mean, his – you might almost describe his devotion to baseball as an obsession. I mean, it's almost – too much maybe at times you know i think the makeup issues were more just you know about maturity questions not so much that this guy isn't going to give you everything he has right but that's what i'm saying he actually that's that was part of the story in there is that he you know he was uh looked like he's being a pretty good teammate i actually i guess i tweeted it maybe I didn't put it in the story but about uh how he was you know wearing it good naturedly um i think the thing that uh you know that when his opponent when other players on both teams were uh he was coming off the field and uh Fans were screaming for Bryce Harper for an autograph. So he just heard a lot of Bryce, Bryce from the stands. And then basically all 50-some players in the field started yelling, Bryce, Bryce. <laughs> it was really uh, it was fun to watch. And he just kind of wore it uh, with a smile, which I think he kind of had to do. But, 
you know, I mean, you you can you can definitely overdo it, but the scouts I talked to out there who'd seen him, uh, pretty impressed uh, to a man. And I think that the uh, I, the other thing there is I think that guy's gonna get to the big leagues pretty quick. Just looking at him on the field with futures, I mean, with the uh, Arizona Fall Leaguers, he did not look out of place in any way, in any shape, in any form. Not in terms of tools, not in terms of size, not in terms of how he carried himself. He fit right in. Wouldn't stun me if he had a huge 2011. Honestly, I think he probably goes in as my, you know, I, 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 it's going to be a difficult, uh, it's going to be a difficult meeting. I can already foresee him versus Mike Trout as the number one prospect in the minor leagues because I take him over Mike Trout too. But uh, I just think the impact there is, impact potential is immense, and I think it's, uh, I really do think on my part, I think I was guilty of overcompensating in the other direction, um, trying to tamper down some of the hype. So I can't. I won't speak for you, but I think I did a little bit because I think there's no way this guy's just a 50 hit tool. This guy's a 60 hitter, if not better, and he's a 60 runner, maybe a 65 runner. When you get comparisons to him to Larry Walker with more power, that's a that's a future Hall of Famer. That's what that is. So that's the kind of player I think he can be. So um, that was eye opening in the fall league, and uh, it really stuck out. He stood out on the field. And for an 18-year-old, a guy should be a high school senior. To do that in the fall league among all those prospects, I thought was pretty outrageous. And I, I'm almost convinced that if he'd been in the uh, Rising Stars game, uh, a few more people would have watched. I think that would have been an easy call. It's too bad that fall league did not take advantage of that. Uh, Jim, we're here to talk about other stuff, though. We could wrap up the World Series. We could talk about the Red Sox and Yankees top tens. We did both of those. Of course, you did the Red Sox. I did the Yankees. How many years now? Spanning your two stints at Baseball America, have you done uh, Red Sox top ten or top thirty prospects? Huh, that's interesting because you know I've done them. I, I've done the last, I guess, eleven. Yeah, ever since we've done the prospect handbook, and we're on the eleventh edition. I've done the Red Sox top thirty, and I did them for a number of years. You know, I, I don't know when I did my first one, but it was probably five or six years before that. So I, I've probably done 15 or 16 years of, of Red Sox top 10 slash top 30s. Were you doing the list when Donnie Sadler was number one, not bagging on you for Donnie I Sadler? Did. I, I did. And uh, what's funny is, I mean, if you go back and look, I mean, I know that one looks weird, but it's every time I, I, I start to feel bad about that, I go back and look at who was there and... Uh, I, I think I made the right decision at the time. I mean, that was – we'll, we'll, we can – we will, we'll just use any. Oh, I'm not trying to. I mean, ba- I'm not Nomar, trying to bag Nomar on Garcia him. Parra was not the Nomar Garcia Parra who was bursting shirtless off the cover of Sports Illustrated a few years later. Correct. And guys viewed him as a, a defensive-oriented guy without much pop, which is you know he probably weighed about 170 pounds at the time. He was almost um, viewed as he was almost looked at kind of like an Adam Everett type, wasn't he? I think. Well, I think people thought he'd hit. I just. I, I think you, they thought he'd hit. And be a good defender. They just nobody saw he'd hit for the kind of power he had. And you know, Sadler had a, a tremendous year in low A ball. Was very dynamic shortstop, and he played. You know, and he stole a bunch of bases. Uh, and, he, and I think he had more offensive upside. What happened that wound up killing Donnie Sadler was the next year they jumped him a couple levels and tried to move him to center field. Right. And he never recovered. They just asked him to do too much. Uh, and so I, I don't think we ever saw what Donnie Sadler might really have become. He just kind of got rushed and bounced around. But uh, you know, I, I think Jeff Supon and, and Trot Nixon were also in that top four. And Sadler obviously had the worst career. But, you know, at the time, I mean, you know, Nomar looked like a – a good defender with a you know solid bat and you know Trot couldn't stay healthy and then Supan was like a, a number three starter and you know Sadler was like a guy who might win a major league stolen base title. So, He's still somehow. Uh, yeah, Donnie, that, was, that was me. So I was doing at least as far back as that. Donnie Sadler still played parts of eight seasons in the big leagues, albeit with a career five forty six OPS. But still, for a five foot six dude, I mean that's that's pretty impressive. That's a pretty impressive, uh, pretty amazing career. Let's talk about this year's Red Sox and Yankees top ten. This is, my, I think, I think my sixth year of doing Yankees top tens. Um, I think my first year was 05 when uh, Eric Duncan was number one, so that's a little bit worse than Donnie Sadler. I don't think Eric Duncan's getting eight years in the big leagues, no matter what. He's now in the uh, – he spent last year in the Braves organization. So uh, everybody has their hits and misses. Number two on that list, Robbie Cano. Uh, definitely thought that Robbie Cano would be a, a good big league player. I think both of us are a little bit surprised at how good he's become. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody saw him, even the Yankees, I don't think saw him being a, becoming an MVP caliber hitter. 
do, do you, you know, do you think either? I, I think it's easy to say the best prospect in either of these two organizations is Jesus Montero, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty easy to say. I mean, I've, you know, I, mean, I guess I'm throwing superlatives around left and right. Uh, you know, I, I think Montero, of all the hitters in the minor leagues right now, is the best all-around hitter. I, I think he's going to hit for a ton of average and a ton of power. I'm, I'm still not sold by any means that he's going to be a catcher long term. Yeah, I agree. Although I think if you want to dream a little bit, I mean, he could maybe, you know, why couldn't he have a Mike Piazza-like career back there? I mean, Mike Piazza, I think if Montero can get a little bit better as a receiver, that could work. I mean, Mike Piazza didn't throw anybody out, but he provided so much offense. You know, you came out ahead of the game. And, you know, I think Montero, you know, Montero, I think tools-wise could be a better defender than Piazza was and be that same type of high average you know, big home run type of guy, you know, especially in Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree completely. I think he's got opposite field power and spades, which really will suit him very well to Yankee Stadium. I think uh, defensively, (laughs) this sounds horrible, but how much worse can he get than Jorge Posada is right now? No, I I agree. I mean, Posada's not very good right now. I mean, and, you know, sometimes, you know, the light, you know, you maybe it takes, you know, getting to the big leagues and, maybe not playing as much as you want because your defense isn't where it needs to be to light a little fire under him too. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case with Jesus Montero, but, you know, we're talking Yankees, Red Sox prospects. Uh, you know, Hanley Ramirez was a much harder worker and better player in the big leagues than he ever was in the minor leagues. That's a great you know, point. He, that's a great point, Jim. I think you're um, on And, you know, I think sometimes you, know, you can tell a guy – you know, hey, you got to get better, you got to get better, you know, but until you come up to the big leagues and maybe you're playing three times a week and sitting behind Posada and, and Cervelli, that it doesn't hit home quite as much. And so don't, for, I, and don't I forget. I think the best option for next year, you know, you allude to, I mean, Posada's defense is terrible right now also, is I would just take all three of those guys and let them all catch about a third of the games and you can mix and match how you want and then let Posada and Montero – get the bulk of the time at DH, and, you know, that way maybe Montero gets, you know, 350, 400 at-bats in the big leagues and, you know, catches 50, 60 games behind the plate. And you, I mean, I just don't see any point in putting him back in the minor leagues. I agree, and I think your point about, because uh, I wrote about it actually in the number one write-up, is that the Yankees believe that happened for Robbie Cano. He got better around big league instruction, and a lot of that big league instruction came from other Yankees. And I think they think the same thing could happen with Montero. And then don't forget, Tony Pena, Joe Girardi, obviously Girardi, the manager, Pena, you know, Pena also on that staff, both former big league catchers, both noted for the de- defensive ability. Um, that's only going to help. Girardi spent a lot of time in spring training working with Montero. Um, that improvement you know, took and maybe faded away a little bit. Girardi would be in his ear all the time now that Girardi's locked up again. So I'm with you. I think, I think Montero will never be an average defender behind the plate. But you can live with a 40 catcher if he hits the way we think Montero could hit, and he could be an extremely offensive catcher. Um, I, mean, I, think- I think about him. I mean, maybe another parallel of a guy who's in the big leagues right now, but I think I think he can be a better player than this guy who's been a, a, a multiple-time All-Star is Victor Martinez. I mean, Victor Martinez is like a – he can't throw me out right now stealing bases. Uh, and Victor Martinez, and I think Montero's upside, again, I mean, we're not saying he's he's a guarantee to get there, but I think his upside is to be a better offensive player than Victor Martinez. I agree. The one reason, and I think we never hear those comparisons, is that Montero actually has arm strength as opposed to, Mon- right. to Martinez or Piazza. I think the receiving is the bigger issue and also the handling of pitchers, and that's going to be you know, that's going to be a factor. And the Yankees are spending a lot of money on pitchers right now. You know, A.J. Burnett. Clearly needs to be handled with kid kid gloves, and that guy's under contract till he's what thirty six with the Yankees, and there's talking about uh, spending a lot of money on Cliff Lee. So, uh, you know, uh, Cliff Lee, if you're not getting him a couple of extra inches off the black, or you're not and command is what he's all about. If you're costing him strikes because you can't handle it, and you can't handle him, you can't receive well enough, you're not going to stick behind the plate because Cliff Lee's the big investment there, not you. So. Right. Uh, he's going to have to get better at receiving, but I think it's, I think he's going to be good enough with the offense that he brings. Uh, I think the Yankees. Uh, so that's you know, I think these organizations are always going to get compared to each other, Jim, by their uh, franchises and their fans. I think is it fair to say that our the in our assessment of their top tens, either top ten blows us away. They're both solid top tens. I think the Yankees have a little bit stronger top ten because it's 
um, because of Montero, A, uh, because they have up-the-middle talent, <clears throat> excuse me, with three catchers. And then uh, both organizations have are better depth than they have top tens, I would say. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think we've always found that we're maybe more – I think we, we we're more extreme towards organizations we do. Like if you're doing an organization that has talent, you tend to think maybe it's better than it is. And if you're doing an organization that's bad, you tend to think it's worse than it is. Although I still remember who was it like Matt Eddy and Aaron Fit, you know, having this big argument about who was worth the Padres or Nationals a few years ago. That's right. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 neither one of them deserved to be number thirty. They both thought that their team was much better than that. But uh, I, I guess my perception, and maybe I'm a little looking through it through Red Sox colored glasses since I do the Red Sox list is I think the Yankees have a better farm system right now than the Red Sox. Although I think the, not necessarily you, but I think the the perception of fans is that the Yankees farm system is better than I actually think it is. And I think that the perception is that the Red Sox farm system is worse than I think it is. I am not fair. That's, um, I think you're yeah, right. The, the perception the out there is that there's a big very gap. Heavy pitching wise, you know, once you get past Montero and Gary Sanchez, and very little in the way of position players that do a lot for me. Um, and I, you know, the, with any pitchers, I mean, you know, I still, you know, Batances and Brackman a year ago wouldn't have been anywhere close to top ten. And then you flip it over to the Red Sox, and you know, I think they're much deeper, even though their number one prospect is a pitcher. They they stand out more, I think, for their position player depth than they do for their arms. Like if you were doing a if we were doing an exercise where you did the top, say, fifteen position players between the two systems, you might have ten Red Sox on there. And if you're doing the top fifteen arms between the two systems, you'd probably have ten Yankees on there right now. That's a good way to put it too. I agree. I mean I uh, if you ask me which one I'd rather have, I'd rather have pitching prospects though. Um yeah, if I had to choose. Um I think both those teams can go out and trade for or buy hitters and I think the golden, you know, the thing that you really want to do the most as an organization is develop pitching. That said, you know, how many of the Yankees pitchers are going to pitch for the Yankees? And I think those top three guys, uh, Batances, Benuelos, and Brackman, all have a chance to do that. Um, I think on any given day, uh, you know, do you take any of those three guys as the Yankees' top guy? I think Benuelos is the safest bet. I think he's left-handed. That also helps. I think Batances has the best stuff. I think Brackman has a notch below Batances in terms of stuff, better athleticism, which should mean better command. He was in the top 10 last year, by the way, even after his awful year. We kept Brackman in the top 10 last year because of the upside, and he uh, showed it this year, especially in the second half. Um, but the other thing with uh, with Brackman is, you know, the sum is not as, you know, does not equal the whole of the parts. He's, he should be better than he is, is the feeling a lot of scouts get. So a guy with two pitches that are pushing 70 should have a lot more strikeouts than Brackman, a guy with that kind of athletic ability. And they have a lot of guys. I think all three of those guys are Yankees profile guys, but then you have the Adam Warrens and the Hector Noessis and the Ivan Novas and the Brent Marshalls and the Graham Stoneburners and the David Phelpses and the DJ Mitchells. And we've got all kinds of guys like that who really, you know, for the Yankees, the $200 million payroll, those guys are middle relievers or fifth starters. And, uh, you know, I think Adam Warren, we'd be a lot more excited about if he was a Pittsburgh pirate, you know, if he was on the pirates organization, Adam Warren would probably be in their top 10. Uh, if he was in a lot of organizations, he'd be in their top 10, but he'd still profile really more as a number four type starter. I think that's the ceiling there. Maybe a three, um, but more than likely for the Yankees, he's going to be a middle reliever or a fifth starter. So, you know, in terms of value, I, I think I agree with you. There's not as big of a gap between those two organizations as uh, as I thought. Jim, uh, and I think you're right too, John. I mean, that you can what you're saying about the Yankees, you can say about the Red Sox too. Is that a lot of these players are going to have more value to other organizations than they will to the Yankees and Red Sox because right. those teams are in it to win it every year. They're not rebuilding. They're not going to take a year off. I mean, I know the Upstein got a lot of heat for referring to this as a bridge year. And I don't think he was ever saying we aren't going to try to win. He was just saying, you know, we're kind of, you know, resetting a little bit for the future. You know, we've got some young talent. It wasn't, you know, we're giving up on 2010. But, you know, these guys are going to have a hard time cracking lists. You know, you, you've, what if Felix Dubron is a, you know, a lefty. He's got, you know, solid stuff, and he pitched well in the big leagues. And I think a lot of organizations 
you know, you'd be talking with optimism, oh, you know, Felix Dubron's going to be in the rotation next year or this and that. Right. You know, Felix Dubron might be, a, you know, the, the number one lefty reliever in Boston's bullpen next year. He's got no chance to crack their rotation right now. And, you know, he's that guy who didn't qualify for the list. And I don't think he's a top, top prospect. But, you know, Ryan Kalish, to me, you know, has a chance to be a solid regular. Right. But he's not going to get that chance in Boston, probably. You know, they're talking about going out and getting a Jason Worth or a Carl Crawford. They've right. already got Ellsbury. they got Mike Cameron still under contract. You know, J.D. Drew's scheduled to get another year in his contract. So, cool. you know, you, you just it, – it's tough unless you have injuries for both those teams or you have a guy who's just a really, really standout prospect. The team is not going to give you, you know, two years and a 1,000 at-bats to grow in to a starting role. You need to be able to produce at a very high level right away, or you're just not going to get an opportunity to do that much in Boston or New York. I, I don't think I ever it ever hit home, Jim, but just how much money you're, uh, the two top 30s that you do, because uh, you do Red Sox and Cubs, those are two different, those are two tough organizations to rank because, uh, you know, it's not like the Twins, where if you profile as a third or fourth starter, like they're excited about you. If you're a fourth starter, you could be the number one guy. <laughs> Nick Blackburn was a couple of years ago. Um, it's a little bit different deal when you're ranking teams with hundred and two hundred million dollar payrolls. But both the clubs you do top thirties for have those giant payrolls, and really the profile really matters in both those organizations. Yeah, the difference I think is I don't think the Cubs spend their money at the major league level as well as the Red Sox do. They kind you don't of, say <laughs> we're, we're spending out of desperation, so they've got a bunch of guys with bad contracts. So I think. Yeah, you know, I, I know when we rank these again, we don't we don't downplay these guys compared to other organizations because they're not necessarily going to make it with their you know with their current big league organization. You kind of have to project, you know, what's this guy's value on a typical major league club? Not you know, is he never going to play for the Yankees? But it's just you know, it just I guess it hits home when you're writing about the future. You know, like like for instance, another guy like Josh Reddick with the Red Sox who. You know, has, you know, I think across the board, you know, average, you know, I don't know how many plus tools he has, but he's, he's probably average to slightly above average across the board. He's a great and he example. He plays center field. So for a lot of, you know, shoot, I mean, here in Chicago, uh, he'd probably be playing center field for the Cubs or the White Sox, or at least getting a long look. And with the Red Sox, you know, he's had a couple opportunities. And it seems like unless he's playing against the Orioles, he just hasn't hit a whole lot. And he's the type of guy who puts a lot of pressure on himself. So when things don't go well, they kind of snowball him a little bit. Well, he's had a couple opportunities to play in Boston. Not, you know, extended, but he's gotten a couple opportunities and hasn't produced. And now, you know, we were just talking about Kalish. I don't even know how Josh Reddick makes the big league team next year. And, you know, this is a guy who hit pretty well the last two months in AAA and just hit throughout the minors, and he's just kind of trapped. And so, you know, a lot of these guys, you, you wind up, you know, going back and looking, and it, it seems they wind up getting used in trades. Yeah, and, I, and it does uh, – that's one of the things I kept encountering talking to Yan- scouts who have coverage of the Yankees was, hey, look, they're very well set up for trades. And that, that was meant as a compliment by everybody. So, uh, And that, that means the Yankees are doing their job and – um, it's interesting. Uh, I think the Yankees system had a terrible year in 2009. As bad a year as they had in 2009, they had a, a very good year in 2010. And uh, that doesn't get any attention, and nor should it really, when you have a $200 million-plus payroll and you look as old as they did in the postseason. Uh, speaking of the postseason, we haven't even really wrapped up the World Series on the uh, Baseball America podcast. Uh, Jim, I don't know, uh, obviously, obvious congratulations to the Giants. Um, did you ever do a Giants top ten back in the day? You ever ranked Marcus oh, Jensen number years. one? I think I did it for four or five. I think I ranked Marcus Jensen about five different years. <laughs> when we only did ten, he made the top ten for about five years in a row. So he's now their Arizona yeah, League manager. In my first in baseball, America, they were they were one of my organizations. I did for several years. You were getting ready to write a bump of the St. Petersburg Giants back then. Probably, yeah. Came close to happening, but uh, and I did the Giants uh, when we first started doing the handbook. I did the Giants. I think for the first five years of the handbook. Did, did them recently enough to rank Pablo Sandoval, uh, so it's been fairly recent. Uh, not recently enough to he's rank. Probably under two, he's probably under 250 pounds at the time. So. He was. As a matter of fact, the first time I ranked him, he was 5'11", 180, and we described him as an ambidextrous catch-and-throw specialist. And I'm questioning <laughs> the 180 in retrospect. But <laughs> I think you're, I think you're like right. 12, but. I, I wonder if he's actually, uh, you know. I, he's, I question the 245 now, so put it that way. Yeah, I think the 245 is probably kind. It's always, always the fat guy making catches. He just meant he could eat with either hand, right? <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Um, but, yeah, so obvious congratulations to the Giants. Uh, Jim, you had the question in SBA. I wrote a column about it, kind of a historical perspective, really, 
of the Giants, those first three first those three first round draft picks in a row, Lincecum 06, Bumgarner 07, Posey 08. It certainly would be fun to play what if and what would have happened if Lincecum had gone to other teams in 2006. I think you and I have more frequently talked about the what if in 2005. What if the you know any team had met his million dollar request as a sophomore eligible out of UW? And he what had if the, a great cape. He, he, he had a great cape. cape. What if the Indians? Yeah, what if the Indians had gone ahead and signed him that summer? But he even got beamed by a line. He got hit in the head by a line drive and came back and, and had tremendous numbers. And I can't remember the exact amount. I've heard different numbers over the years. But, you know, the Indians drafted him, and I've heard they offered him either 500000 or 800000 but they wouldn't go to the full million. And, you know, obviously that would have been you – know, people do the what if with Tim Lincecum. I don't really think there were any teams ahead of the Giants seriously considering taking I agree. No, that's why, that's why I think it's useless to play that. Talk, you know, and it's funny now because <laughs> I remember a little differently. You know, there was a story that came out in the World Series, and I can't remember who wrote it. It was probably before the World Series that the Rangers were poised to take Tim Lincecum. He was their guy. I also remember being told at the time that even if he was there, that they really wanted a left-hander and were leaning towards Casey Kiker. Because I remember, and this will make you laugh, I, it might have been the day, I guess that was before the draft was on TV. So I would have been home. I, I think I ran out to get like like McDonald's at like 11 a.m. <laughs> or so, or early in the afternoon, whatever it was, like a very quick lunch. And Jamie Newberg of the Newberg Report called me to find out if I thought they would take Lincecum. And I said, I keep hearing they'll take Casey Kiker if he's there. And and Jamie was just apoplectic that they were, you know, would, would pass on, would pass on Lincecum. But uh, it's funny. I'm sure there 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 definitely are more teams now who will claim, hey, we were all over the guy, uh, than there were at the time. But you know, I think we ranked. I want to say we ranked him number two on we our did. overall draft board. Behind Andrew, Miller. Andrew Miller was one, and Brad Lincoln was three. So that top three. Two out of three is not good, but one, but the the one that we got right, we got right. So. But I, I just don't think um, I don't I can't recall any of the teams in front of them really being on Linscombe, and it wasn't that he was asking. I, I think he signed for well, I want to say two million dollars, which would have been right around slot. I don't think it was a money thing at that point. I just think there were a number of teams, and I, I think there still would be today that an unorthodox, smallish right-hander. You're going to have teams that, you know, it's, everybody wants their first round pick to look the part, and they're just, they're not, you know, you got to give the Giants, I think, the most credit for, they just really don't care what other people think. You know, they don't, they don't talk to other teams about what they're going to do in the draft. They take the guy they want, and they don't really, they, they don't really care what other people think. So I, I think the Giants are, they, they may not be, you know, year in, year out the best drafting team, but, uh, you know, they're, they're not afraid to go with what they think. That's pretty much it. That's how I. That's how I feel about it. And uh, Madison Bumgarner, another one. I just was reading, uh, cleaning out some old emails the other day, and uh, found one. I don't remember who I was emailing to, but it was the night after I'd gotten back from seeing Bumgarner uh, in high school. Got a uh, got a John Smiley comp on him that night, <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny to think about. John Smiley had a couple of really good years. I mean, he won twenty games one year. He was a you know he's a playoff rotation starter a couple times with the. Uh, what I guess was Minnesota uh, or Pittsburgh, I guess maybe it was Pittsburgh, and then Cincinnati in 1995 after some injuries. But the implication being a guy, a left-hander who could really pitch off his fastball and then have tremendous secondary stuff. Uh, always been a Bumgarner fan. Very excited to see Madison Bumgarner uh, pitch as well as he did in the World Series. And, uh, you know, I think the question there is then looking forward from that World Series, what does the future really hold for the Giants and the, you know, the uh, the Rangers? I don't really see the Giants changing their methodology at all, Jim. They're going to st- stick with starting pitching. They got four guys they can afford now. They'll probably, you know, have to pony up obviously to pay K- to keep Kane and Lincecum. I can see them doing that. I can see them letting, uh, you know, Sanchez being the guy they trade and keeping Kane and Lincecum, seeing as how they're tied in to uh, Barry Zito and Lin- uh, Bumgarner is cheap and young and. Uh, obviously has a pretty high ceiling. Uh, do you see them changing anything with their methodology? Do you, think, do you see them getting smarter about developing hitters? Uh, you know, with Buster Posey now this year, the breakout season by Brandon Belt. Uh, how do you see the, the Giants' immediate future? I think they're going to have to continue doing what they're doing just because of the way their major league team's structured. I mean, it, it's going to have to be pitching heavy. Their best players are almost all pitchers, at least the guys are going to have to invest in. 
Um, you know, the thing is, I mean, besides Belt, and, you know, Belt has made Brandon Belt has made great strides this year. You know, I'll give you know the Giants, you know, adjusted his stance and he really took off. I don't know that they have a whole lot of other hitters who are really going to step in and make any kind of significant impact for them. They're going to kind of have to do what they did this year, which is kind of create a lineup. You know, they got Aubrey Huff as a bargain free agent. Uh, you know, he's a free agent again. You know, Pat Burrell was released and played out of his mind for him. Andres Torres had by far the best year of his career. Not even close. Uh, you know, Amazing. Juan Uribe, you know, was part of another championship team. I mean, it wasn't a very imposing lineup. Uh, you know, I, 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 I will see what they do with Huff and Burrell. I'm not really sure they're going to put up those same numbers again. I mean, you love Buster Posey, but, you know, they're going to – it looks like to me they've got, you know, right now on their roster one hitter you really, really like, and then they're going to have to figure out an offense around him somehow. Yeah, and I think some, with that park and the strength of the team, it, it plays towards pitching anyway. I agree, and I think uh, you know their revenues will at least stay the same, if not go up, with their success. So I see them being able to spend. But I mean, the the real question there is, will they learn some of the lessons in terms of spending? I mean, Aaron Rowan's contract. You know, I actually brought this up with a Giants official uh, in the last couple months, and he asserted that was not a lost contract, just because even though Aaron Rowan hasn't played well that he helped change the atmosphere in their dugout and their clubhouse. I don't know how much that's worth. They still overpaid him. I don't know if that's worth $55 million bucks. Right. Uh, obviously, Edgar Renteria paid off in that last couple of weeks with the World Series and the playoffs. That, that, that's unbelievable because, I mean, even though he played well in the World Series, that contract made no sense to me at the time. And, Correct. I mean, he, he didn't look like Vladimir Guerrero running around in right field, but, but man, I swear you can hear his joints creak when he tries to go in the hole to make a play at shortstop. Yeah. <laughs> At I least mean, he could bend over. Yeah, I mean, it's just he's he struggled out there. But I mean, it's it's interesting because in a way, I mean, I, I'm with you. You got to give him credit. Yeah, you know, they made some great draft picks. I think I wrote my column in the current issue about this, John. You know, everybody talked about, and rightfully so. You know, Lincecum and Posey and Bumgarner. But what they all, you know, they had just, and they, you know, also had Matt Cain, but they also had four guys they drafted after the 20th round on that team, too. Right. Three of whom played major role. You know, they had Brian Wilson, who was a Tommy John guy, who they took, even though he was just coming off surgery. And, you know, they found Jonathan Sanchez and, and Sergio Romo. And it, it's funny, because I was just reading, you know, Sports Illustrated touched on that, too. Um, and then they, they were talking there about how, I think it was Dick Tidrow was talking about how Sanchez, you know, they got him late because he didn't put up good results in, in college. Well, I mean, shoot, the guy threw four no-hitters in college. I, 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 I read that article, too, and I, I was I was reading that in the airport, and I was like, that is bull. He went 11-0 as a it was, junior. It was funny because it's like, I, you mean, and I just ran the column on it after I read before I read the article, and it said, uh, you know, the, the thing was people didn't like his delivery. He kind of pushed the ball, and I think his stuff was they just weren't sure how it was going to play at the big league level or in pro ball. They didn't like his delivery, but the area scout just said, look, this guy's got a very good arm. We can, you know, we can change the delivery, and there'll still be something good there. But, but so anyway, I mean, I guess the, the thing I was trying to say before I started babbling about their low round picks, John, was in a way I almost think their win almost gives false hope a little bit to some teams. It, you know, you can build this this great pitching staff, and then you know, have another, you know, a very mediocre offense and win. Because one, I don't think it's real easy to build a great pitching staff. Agree. And two. I mean, they they played they outplayed everybody in the playoffs. They they beat teams people didn't think they were going to beat. They deserved it. You know, my hats off to them. I just don't know if the playoffs if they redid the playoffs starting today, if I pick them to win. Looking at that offense, I just don't think it's that easy to do. And just like in some ways, I think some people looked at the Rays when they got to World Series. And if you're a small revenue team, you know, okay, you know, look, they did it on a small payroll. You can do this. Well, the Rays built a tremendous farm system. It wasn't – those things are easier said than done. You know, I think it, it offers hope when it's not the Yankees or the Red Sox or, or whoever, you know, the Phillies spending $150 million plus and winning the World Series. You know, it offers hope to the teams that don't operate that way. But at the same time, I just don't know how easy it is to duplicate what the Giants have done. I don't know how easy it is to duplicate what the – you know what the Rays have done. I mean, I'll, I'll disagree with you. I'm process of doing that now, but you also, you really do have to hit on a lot of your guys too. I'll, I'll disagree with you on that though, because uh, you know, nine of the last ten years, baseball's had a different World Series champion. So I think it is well, I'm not doable. There are different ways to win it. I just think. I think it's. I think it is doable. I I think that the Giants model is a more difficult model than the Rays. I think the Rays are have paired good scouting and player development with an intelligent 
approach to getting free talent and free agents and that kind of thing at the major league level, whether it's Joaquin Benoit or getting uh, Carlos Peña off the scrap heap a couple of years ago and riding that for as long as they could. Um, yeah, I think that it's harder to sustain. There's no doubt. I think the Rays model is more sustainable than the Giants model. Let's not forget the gap in revenue there between the Giants and the Rays is very significant. Um, you know, with the Giants, we're talking about a team that, you know, we mentioned Rowan and uh, Renteria. At least those guys were on the postseason roster, better than Barry Zito can say. He wasn't even on any of the three postseason rosters. You know, at the time, it was the biggest contract ever for a pitcher. And he doesn't even make their postseason roster. He's a fifth starter. He's a good fifth starter because he's durable and he's basically league average. But he's a fifth starter. So uh, I think the Giants could be this good without spending as much money as they, as they, as they have spent. I just think their method is harder because it's very hard. I honestly think their method actually validates what you and I talk about all the time, which is stars. You win with stars. And in their case, they won with stars. Star first-round picks, Kane, Bumgarner, Lincecum, and one star in the lineup in Buster Posey. It's harder to do that because we just looked at it, and in the column we talked about it, and you talked about it in SBA, how rare it is to keep hitting on first-round picks. But, you know, the Angels' method was pretty similar back in 2002 uh, they got lucky with some guys in the bullpen, but they had a lot of high draft picks that they accreted over time. I've been watching a lot of space stuff lately, so I'm going to use the word accreted. They just pulled in one or two pieces at a time, but over five, six, seven years, boom, uh, they got hot. They got hot in August and September, and then October, and they won it. In the Giants' case, they got hot really in September. They were unbelievable on the mound in September, and they gave up more than four runs twice the entire month of September and October in the regular season. And then once or twice in the playoffs. So um, I think they actually proved our star theory. Uh, they validated that theory that you win with stars and not depth. Um, but it is a harder way to go because you've got to make sure you hit on all those picks. But they have Dick Tidrow. And Dick Tidrow is a great evaluator of pitching. And uh, it showed in the World Series. Let's, uh, let's move on to some of our podcast questions. We have lots of questions this week um, at podcast at baseballamerica.com. We'll start off with a regular, of course, Joe LaCate. We've got four questions, if not five questions, Jim. So let's. Uh, I, I got a few on my end, too. So we'll, we'll go through yours and great. we'll run through mine, and maybe we'll wrap it up at that point. Sounds good. Um, perhaps an overly simplistic question asked Joe, but in light of Pat Murphy uh, being on his way to manage short season Eugene next year, what is the reason we do not see more amateur managers or coaches hired by professional operations? Uh, Jim, I would argue that uh, college coaches make more money now and minor league managers, and that's why they don't do it. It's an easier job, less travel, more money. It's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, no, that, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you get you have more control of what you're doing. You make more money. You're the you're the big cheese instead of the manager in, in short season ball somewhere. Um, you know, I think when I started working Baseball America in the late 80s, there was not a lot of respect between pro ball and college ball. Uh, a lot of the pro teams felt the college coaches didn't know what they were doing. They were ruining pitchers. And, and I think now there's a lot more respect for it. You see sometimes guys, you know, maybe get tired of coaching and go into scouting or, or going to things here and there. But you're right. I mean, it's just it's not as a, you know, I think it would be very unlikely for, say, Pat Murphy, who's you know had a very successful college coaching career. I can't envision Pat working his way up the minors and eventually becoming the Padres manager one day. No, I could um, see him as a major league manager, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think the first good college job that comes open after his NCAA inquiry is done with, he will be a college coach again. Oh, so. I agree with you. I'm just saying, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, is he really going to put in, you know, say five years in the minors, you know, rising up the ladder or is he going to take that college job you know where he can be the guy and you know and you know it's shit i mean when you're a minor league manager it's it's you're a lot of ways you're doing what the organization tells you to do you're not trying to win games or you know able to you know go with your hunches it, it's a totally different job so i think that's i'm with you john it's just, I, I think it's more attractive you make more money you have more power you get more fame as a college coach yeah, I think it's a pretty easy easy call there, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the Pat Murphy experience in the short season Northwest League. That's going to be fun. Um, Michael Kilborn in Seattle really enjoyed our draft review on the podcast, um, and I, I mean, we wanted to see basically how we did in 2005, Jim, and I didn't even think to prepare for this question like I should have. Uh, that's my mistake. So we might have so to what, get – What's his question? What does he like, want to know? We graded the drafts. So we picked our top five drafts basically. He wants to know who, what drafts we said were the best ones in 2005. 
and I thought I would have this question in the office, but I'm recording this in the home office. I don't have my binder here for 2005. So uh, I'm, I'm looking here real quick. Actually, we, I, I will go online. We had our best draft was the Marlins followed by the Red Sox, Diamondbacks, Cardinals, and Athletics. Okay. Well, no, uh, no, oh, that, no, that actually is online. How about that? I didn't Look know. over and figure out who those teams drafted. Uh, well, the Red Sox at two, that's easy. That's Clay Buckholtz, Jed Lowry, Jacoby Ellsbury. Craig Hansen. Craig Hansen was our, our draft report card photo on the website. He Still was, up. and that one did not quite work out as well. But so that, I think that one definitely has stood the test of time. I mean, that's one of the better drafts, you know. In, of the in decade, memory. yeah. No, it is one of the best ones. How about that Marlins draft? Who the Marlins time? picked to see who we liked in that Marlins draft. Here we go. Marlins went with, and the thing is, without well, you know, that year the Marlins had a million first-round picks, <laughs> and it's funny because, and I say this all the time. I mean, those rankings when we do them are based kind of on how much value you got at the time. You could, you know, how much value you got compared to what an average team theoretically pull out. But you, know, you look at this Marlins draft now. You got first-round pick Chris Volstead who's been okay. You have first-round picks Aaron Thompson and Jacob Marceau, who've never played in the big leagues. You've got sandwich picks, Ryan Tucker and Sean West, who've been disappointments. But you did have Gabby Sanchez in the fourth round, who had a very nice big league rookie season this year. So you've basically gotten two useful big leaguers in Volstad and well, yeah, Sanchez. Well, their best pick was actually Logan Morrison in the 22nd round. And there you go. That's and, I, was and I would bet at the time we didn't even fact have access in. to this that we did not uh, necessarily cite Logan Morrison as uh, a guy to keep an eye on. So, uh, but yeah, so I mean that one I guess looks better because Logan Morrison was hanging out down there, and then you know their third draft. You know, we had the Diamondbacks uh, is one of the best drafts, and one of the reasons we had the Diamondbacks one of the best drafts was they had the number one overall pick in the draft. Uh, in Justin Upton. The rest uh, of that draft, not so hot. I don't think he's quite delivered all his potential, but it's still, you know, he's he's pretty young. Micah uh, Owings. Behind him, they had Matt Tora, who yeah. was hurt and didn't never really pinned out. And, you know, they had guys like Micah Owings, Greg Smith. Uh, that, that's pretty much going to be the Justin Upton draft when all is said and done. Yeah, the two fringy pitchers and then the Justin Upton draft. Uh, and Cardinals and A's were the other two, uh, you know, top five drafts we ranked that year. And uh, I don't think the A's, that was the one with the, all those three high school pitchers. Um, the Cardinals draft, I think, will pretty stand good. up because it had Colby Rasmus and they got Jaime Garcia in the 22nd round. And that was, like we, we, we did like Jaime Garcia even way back then. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy who came out. You know, they're going to have, it looks like, at least seven big leaguers. They did, they did not hit on six-rounder uh, Wilfredo Pujols, one of the all-time – uh, relative overdrafts. That was a guy who <laughs> was not a very good high school player in the St. Louis area, but they drafted him in the sixth round to make uh, Albert happy. And then uh, with the uh, with the athletics, Cliff Pennington, their first pick. He, I know you were always higher on Cliff Pennington than I was, but he's having a nice big league career. Solid shortstop. Not great, but solid. Travis Buck is a mystery. Uh, not sure what happened to him. Great rookie year and then nothing since then. Craig Italiano, Jared Lansford, and Vince Vin Mazzaro. You know, four years after Moneyball, I mean, Moneyball is, won't go away. The Giants bringing it up. Uh, I guess Tony Siegel bringing it up after the World Series. Uh, I wish we'd all just let it go. Uh, but uh, the three high school pitchers they drafted that year, none of those guys have really you know, worked out until recently with Mazzaro kind of coming on. And the rest of that draft really uh, didn't bring you a whole lot either to uh, Oakland. So, well, the uh, best guy they probably picked was Justin Smoke, and they didn't sign I think him. they offered him, I want to say, $950,000. It was, eight, eight it was something in the nines, and he wanted a million and went to school over, you know, went to school together. Yeah, the story I always heard was 850000 uh was their final offer, and uh, and that he didn't, you know, he wanted a million. So over that $150,000, he did not sign. But, uh, so there you go. I mean, that's... So I would we say that salvage that question. We did a fine job of salvaging that question on the fly. I would say the Red Sox uh, looked the best at retrospect from that 2005 draft. Um, so Michael Kilborn, thanks for the question. We've got Jerry. I think we may have answered this last time. Uh, uh, we're talking about the Blue Jays. Um, I think we actually answered that question last time. So Jerry, uh, forgive me. Uh, I, I, if we did answer it, email me and let me know. We have Michael McAvaney. Out of Glen Rock, New Jersey, what kind of drafts should the Mets expect under the new Sandy Alderman Alderson regime? Um, he has a couple other long pitchers, uh, 
you know, we won't uh, go into that. Uh, a very long question, I should say, about their pitchers. What kind of drafts do you expect? The Mets, Jim, apparently going to hire Paul D. Podesta as their assistant well, yeah, general. they hired him and, and J.P. Richard. I, I would think. But, but Paul D. Podesta oh, specifically is scouting and farm director, basically. Right. Um, and a release vice president. I don't know if they'll hire a scouting director under him. But all three of those guys have leaned heavily towards college players. So I would expect them to draft, you know, at least have a college flavor to their draft. I mean, I think the big question with the Mets is how much are they going to be allowed to spend? It's not a matter of not having money. It's a matter of the owner buying into what Bud Seal excels about not spending on the draft. And there's no question it hurts the franchise. And that's the big question. And, I mean, you would assume – that well, you know, you, you'd assume that whoever would take the job would say, look, I've got to spend more on the draft, except, you know, Sandy Alderson was really the architect of the slotting system, you know, 10, 12 years ago when he worked in the commissioner's office. So I, I have no feel for how they're going to draft until somebody tells me how much money they're going to spend. But you know what? If he follows form of uh, of the other guy who helped uh, try to hold down bonuses, Frank Coonley, and the Mets are going to spend like crazy like the Pirates have. Cause... Well, I guess the difference there is Frank was just doing <laughs> Right, and, right. You know, no, this was Sandy's job. about the irony that Frank now is showing how valuable draft is, whereas I think this is something Sandy Alderson believes in. So no, I agree. It's we will see. I'm not, I'm not convinced until we see otherwise. Gonna, I'll put it this way. I, they may spend more. I'll believe that they're going to throw their financial weight around when, I see it. when it happens. I'm I not agree. convinced it's going to happen. I'm with you. Well, what questions do you have, Jim, and then we'll wrap this up. Okay, well, we'll go, we'll go lightning round on these because I threw out that we were going to talk mainly about Yankees and Red Sox. So uh, I just have Twitter Twitter names here. So Wes Yee wants to know what the future holds for Lars Anderson. Is there still all-star potential there? And the same questions uh, regarding Justin Smoke and Brett Wallace. Uh, I mean, I guess if you wanted to dream – you know, you could maybe dream Lars Anderson has some all-star potential in there. I just, I just don't think that's a realistic projection right now. I, his year was not as bad as it may have looked because he hit a little better toward the end of the year in AAA and he tore up AA and he's still young. But, I mean, he's a first baseman who has yet to, to show much loft in a swing and hit for power. And he's also, you know, just hasn't hit lefty the last two years. So he's one of those guys I think it's going to be very difficult for him to get an opportunity in Boston unless he really turns it up. And, and what do you think about Smoke and Wallace, John? That's a good question. I, I, I believe a little bit more than in Brett Wallace, I think, than you do. I really think that, uh, you know, he's a pure hitter. I know he doesn't uh, always look the part, but uh, the guy's always hit. I think he's going to hit. I do question the power. And I got more questions on the athleticism of Justin Smoke this year than I've ever had before. And that really uh, gives me pause. So I, I wonder about that one. Uh, for me, uh, I would take Justin Smoke there uh, because I do believe in his power more than Brett Wallace's. But uh, either one of those guys is a sure thing. And I really thought they were both going to be uh, very productive big leaguers. And right now I'd say the chances are only one of them becomes a productive big leaguer. What do you think? I would take Smoke over Wallace. It bothered me that Wallace struck out a lot this year. Right, I don't know if I he agree. was trying to hit for power to change who he was. Right. Um, and I haven't given up on Smoke, but I was kind of disappointed by the way his year went. I would still take him. I still think he is all-star potential to me. I just wonder about Wallace really hitting for power, although I think it will be amplified somewhat by playing in Houston. And I see Wallace maybe more as closer to a solid regular than really an all-star, uh, whereas I thought that he had more all-star potential in the past. Um Next question comes from Jay Destro, who wants to know, has the Yankees' pitching depth eclipsed the, eclipsed the Red Sox farm system? I'm kind of confused by the comparison, but I think, John, based on what we talked about, the Yankees, we, we both think the Yankees have a little bit better farm system than the Red Sox right now, and that the strength of their farm system is pitching depth. I think that's very fair to say. The other, but the other strength of the Yankee system is catching. You know, they have three in the top ten. I still think uh, Austin Romine is going to be a solid average big league regular. I don't think he's going to be a star. I didn't think, I didn't think he was going to be a star last year when we ranked him second. He just was in a better year in the farm system this year than last. I really haven't changed my opinion on Austin Romine, and I was impressed with him in the fall league. Uh, you know, the scouts I talked to uh, out there about Austin Romine also were encouraged by him. And for a guy playing like games 120, 130 of the year as a catcher, you know, they thought he was, you know, holding up pretty well, receiving well, throwing very well. Uh, got a one eight five pop time on him on last Friday, so uh, I thought that, uh, you know, I thought I think Austin Romine 
Gary San- Gary Sanchez, Jesus Montero. You know, if Austin Romine were in the Red Sox system, he would have a chance to be their starting big league catcher next year. Let's, let's face it. Uh, they're desperate for catching in Boston if they don't bring Martinez back. And, uh, you know, the, Romine's almost a luxury right now to the Red Sox, so uh, to the Yankees. I think the Yankee system is stronger, and the main reason for that is pitching. But they also have, you know, catching, uh, which is a coveted position to have. Down the, down the list, J.R. Murphy probably won't catch, but he's a decent prospect. Kyle Higashioka is a very good catch-and-throw guy. Has a chance to hit enough to be a, a big league, like a, a Cervelli type, a better version of, of Frank Cervelli. Uh, for me, uh, you know, that the other thing to factor in there, there was we thought the Rangers were loaded with catching two years ago, Jim, and look how that worked out. So, well, ten- you, know, you, you could, if you wanted to take a pessimistic view, you, you could look at it and say, well, Jesus Montero might not wind up behind the plate. You know, Gary Sanchez still has a lot of work to do. Yeah, he's in rookie ball. You just ball. never know. You know, it's, that's why you know, we get that kind of version of that question. You know, hey, this team has loaded this position. What should they do or should they avoid drafting guys at that position? You know, what looks like your strength now very well might not be a strength two years down the road. I, so, uh, that, that's true. Very true. Those things change. Okay, now we have Will Wood Boston wants to know, is asking us, who has the most trade value in the Red Sox system? among players not ranked in their top five prospects? And that's kind of a tough question in that, I mean, most of these lists, the guys who have the most trade value are going to be the guys at the top of your list. I mean, that said, I think the obvious answer would be the guys at that point who are, A, ranked the highest, or B, are the closest to the big leagues. And for the Red Sox, that would probably be guys like Felix Dubron, um, you know, Josh Reddick. But again, if they're going to go make a blockbuster, you know, Adrian Gonzalez deal, Right. I don't think Josh Reddick or Felix DeBron's going to be the headliner Correct. in the deal. You're going to have to trade. You know, it'll be interesting. I don't know if the Red Sox – I really don't think they'd want to trade Casey Kelly, and I really think the Padres love Casey Kelly because Jason McLeod and Jed Hoyer were with Boston when they drafted him. Right. But you, know, you could conceivably maybe do, depending on how determined they are to trade him, you know, Anthony Rizzo and Drake Britton and a couple other guys – but, uh, again, I mean, I think on any list, your, your top trade guys are, are your guys ranked the highest on the list. Yeah, no, I don't, can't disagree with you there. Uh, other questions that we had, the Yankees farm took a huge leap forward this year, says ready to scrumble. Do you expect to see any regression next year? Um, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a math guy, so I, but I understand what he's, trying to t- what he's trying to say. To me, the reason the Yankee system was so bad in 09 relative to how good it was in 2010 was in 2010 – was injuries. You know, Brackman was coming off Tommy John. He got healthy in 2010 and was further away from the injury. Same thing with Dylan Batances. Same thing with Brett Marshall. And they had a good draft in 2009. I like their 2009 draft, and some of those guys really came through. 2008, they didn't sign Garrett Cole. They didn't sign Scott Biddle in the second round. You know, Jeremy Bleich was their highest signed pick, and he was even hurt this year. So I think it's just natural that it, it, the, the things lined up for them to be better in 2010. I don't expect significant regression in 2011. I mean, it might get better. What if their 2010 draftees, guys like Mason Williams and Cito Culver and Angelo Gums, have good debuts in 2011? What if those guys all go out and, and show some hitting ability where really they're more ath- athletes first and the hit tool is secondary? Um, so I don't think it's necessarily, necessarily true that their system will take a, a step back next year. I do think the odds of all their pitchers, really other than Jeremy Blige, all their pitchers who they were kind of counting on, all had good years in 2010. The chances of that happening again in 2011 are less. They're probably not going to repeat that. So, um, But, you know, can anyone Ben Wellis be better in 2011? Yeah, he can. He went 0-4 this year and only threw 60 innings. It'll be a big step forward if Manny Ben Wellis throws 130, 140 innings in 2011. I, I really like Manny Ben Wellis. I think Yankee fans are almost getting a little too overheated on Manny Ben Wellis. He's not going to be in the big leagues in 2011. I don't think he's ever pitched more than 110 innings in a season. The Yankees have mishandled the transition of the big leagues with Jabba Chamberlain, with Phil Hughes, the guys there was more hype and who had better stuff than Manny Benuelos. Benuelos has more poise than those guys, but uh, he's only 19. Uh, I just don't see him in the big leagues in 2011. I think Yankee fans need to just temper their expectations a little bit, and let's see if he can maintain this quality of stuff, three-plus pitches, over 130 to 150 innings. When he does that, He'll be ready for the big leagues. Until then, uh, he's very, very good. But I mean, I'm just not ready to call him the next uh, whatever. You know, I, I like him a lot, but I think there's reason to be cautious about Ben Wellis as well. That 
seems to be getting forgotten here. But I, yeah, I think that there's a, I think this, it makes sense if you think about it in the big picture of why the Yankee system took a leap forward in 2010. They got healthier and they signed their first round pick in 2009 and signed most of their draft picks. Whereas in 2008, they had two high unsigned picks. I think the interesting thing, I, I, I agree with you, John. I mean, it, I think the easy answer for, is if you had a year where you had good health and guys performed well, is that you come back to the pack. And, you know, the Red Sox didn't have as good health, and, and some of their guys were very young, didn't perform as well. They might perform a little better next year. But uh, I think the interesting thing to me for, for the Yankees farm system next year is, you know, this year was such a good year in terms, you know, they, Ben Wallace didn't pitch a lot because he had the appendectomy. But in terms of Ben Wallace's stuff got better, right. and Batonsis and Brackman got healthier and made a lot of strides. Okay, are, are all those guys for real? Correct. It's going to be very interesting to see. You know, if, if those guys continue to build on what they did in 2010, those guys could be very, very exciting in 2011. And if they don't, then the expectations are going to be tempered a little bit. We have a another Twitter question, John, from uh, Crink0836. Yeah, he copied me on that one as well. He wants to know if we would take Manny Benuelos or Casey Kelly. And I, I will let you go first. You know, I, again, I, I love Manny Benuelos. But I'm a big I'm a Casey Kelly guy like you are. I would take Casey Kelly. I just think there's a little bit more upside there. Uh, you, you, you know, that's a very good question. But I would take Casey Kelly. And I would take Kelly too. And and I'll just give my my short spiel on Kelly. I think it's kind of it's kind of funny that a year ago he had a tremendous year considering that he hadn't even pitched professionally, not even an instruction league going into the year. Had a tremendous year, and people it seemed like fans. We're complaining, ah, his stuff, you know, these scouting reports don't blow me away. Right. The stuff doesn't sound that great. So then this year, you know, they jumped him to double A at age 20 with a half season of pitching experience behind him as a professional. And, you know, he did not have a great statistical year, but, you know, he put on 15 pounds. His fastball was in the low 90s consistently. His changeup looks like it will be a plus pitch down the road. I mean, his curveball will be pretty good. He just didn't have the same command. All of a sudden, it was like, well, the performance isn't any good, even though the stuff was a lot better. And I just think, you know, they, like, he's 20 years old. You know, like a lot of these guys are very young, and he's going to put it back together. You know, he'll he'll have the polish he used to have with the improved stuff, and I think that makes for an exciting pitcher. I agree. And I like Ben Wallace, too. The, the, the one thing I'd like to see with him is even though it wasn't a, an arm injury, you can't hold the appendectomy against him. Right. I'd like to see him do it for a full minor league season. You know, the year before he showed some flashes, and I want to say, John, in, in 09, I want to say he faded a little bit late, and I think they even finished him in the bullpen. Well, he wasn't fading. He was he was up against their innings limit, and that's the thing. Oh, is okay. that he, he, he And that's the thing. Uh and now he's a double A. So now he's going to be in double A next year because he's had success at that level. He's going to go to double A, never having pitched more than 110 innings in a season. And they're going to go, okay, repeat it, do it all for 150 innings. And I do the Yankees and I do the Twins, among other organizations I have done. The Twins and the Yankees couldn't handle these things differently. Kyle Gibson was injured in 2009, barely pitched in instructs, goes out and throws 153 innings this year, including in triple A. Now, granted, he's a little bit older. But the Twins want him to be ready for 2011. So what do they do? They push him. They pushed him to the limit. He threw a lot of innings. Look at the Giants. This year, as a 21-year-old, Madison Bumgarner threw close to 220 innings. The Yankees do not do that. They baby their pitchers. There's no other way to put it. They baby their pitchers. And as a result, they had big questions about would Phil Hughes be ready in the postseason this year. He had a great start against the Twins, but wasn't very good in the LCS. Uh, none of their other starting pitchers who've had some hype have worked out. And Jabba Chamberlain's one of the biggest disappointments of the last couple of years. And I think a big reason for it is the way they've handled him and the way they handled him in the big leagues, the Jabba rules and all that. So, you know, to me, uh, the Yankees have got Benuelos, Batonsis. That's the one thing Brackman did. I'm more of a believer in Brackman in some ways than the Yankees are. You know, he threw more innings this year. He grinded through a horrible season in 2009. I think he deserves credit for not packing it in. He was awful that year, and he still improved at the end of the year when they put him in the bullpen. And the you know the Yankees don't seem to leave their guys to throw 150, 160 innings in the minor leagues. And I think it's a good idea to do that. And the Twins' track record for developing pitchers is better than New York's. And one of the reasons I think it's better is they work their guys in the minor leagues. And I, that's where you learn to pitch tired. I'd rather you learn to pitch tired in Rochester or Scranton than in the LCS against the Rangers, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, no, I agree. So I, 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 that's so to me, that's a huge question. I think the Yankees, uh, I think the Red Sox pitching uh, program looks pretty good when you see John Lester and Clay Buckholtz doing what they're doing. So uh, I have more faith in the Red Sox' ability to bring it out of Casey Kelly than I do in the Yankees' ability to bring it out of Manny, Manny Benuelos as well. Uh, so that needs to be factored in there. And then we'll end with Japers. We started off with Joe LaCates. We should end with Japers, Jim. Japers okay. four, Japers 413 on Twitter. State your case why you think your top 30 has more depth than the other ones. I don't think you're going to argue the Red Sox have more depth than the Yankees, do you? No, I think the Red Sox do have more depth than the Yankees. Oh, okay. Well, I'll say that here's, here's – I'll let you go first then. Go okay. The, the, the Yankees – I'll throw out there again. I think when you do an organization that has talent, you do, I think if we – if I did the Yankees and you did the Red Sox, we might have opposite opinions. So That's probably true. Uh, that's a good point. I think I'm going to say, as I try to find my old handbook, I'm going to say that the Yankees – Position player depth, I think, is a little bit better than you're giving it credit for. I think one of the things I like about the Yankees' position players, they have some guys at every level. Uh, AAA, you have Montero. And then I think you're selling Eduardo Nunez short. I think if the Royals had Eduardo Nunez, they'd be going insane with happiness. <laughs> or the Mariners. I think Eduardo Nunez is a solid average, has a chance to be a solid average big league shortstop right now. I think you go to the big leagues, be an average defender or a little bit better, and put up a 700, 730 OPS. And that's not that's not a game changing player. I think he'd be solid, and I think he could be a very good utility man for the Yankees. Uh, then a double A, you've got Austin Romine. Again, I think he's a solid average regular behind the plate that has significant value. Um, you know, at high A, even there they have some intriguing guys. Uh, Melky Mesa was MVP of that league. I don't love Melky Mesa. I don't even know if he's going to get protect on their forty man roster, uh, but he's all tooled up uh, and was MVP of that league. Uh, I like their low class A team, Slade Heathcott. Again, a guy with all kinds of tools. I like the guys they draft this year as far as just drafting for athleticism. Mason Williams, the best product of their 2010 draft. Uh, again, Cito Culver. I, I, everyone I've talked to in and out of that organization think he has a chance to play shortstop. And, and Angelo Gums has some tools. So I think they have, you know, a little bit better. And I'm, again, I'm not mentioning J.R. Murphy, some of the other position players. So I think they have a little bit better position player depth and you're giving them credit for, it's not as good as Boston's. But pitching-wise, I don't think there's a question. Uh, the Yankees' pitching depth is vastly superior, and I think it's probably as good a pitching depth as any organization has in baseball right now. Uh, and again, to me, especially when you're talking about trades, the number one commodity is minor league pitching, and the Yankees have it, and uh, that's why their system is better. Plus, on top of it all, Jesus Montero. So there's my case. What's yours? Okay, we're not talking number one prospects. I know we're talking about depth. I just, I guess, my argument would almost be the exact reverse of yours, John. Is that I think the the difference in pitching. I I think the Yankees do have better pitching. I still, you know, like I said, I want to see Manny Benuelos do it for a full minor league season. I want Batances and Brackman to do it for more than a couple months at a time. I want to see them do it for a full year and build on what they did this year. I'm still not convinced those guys aren't relief pitchers. And, you know, the Red Sox have Kelly. You know, from a pitching standpoint, they have Anthony Renato, who's one of the better pitchers in this year's draft. They have Drake Britton, a left-hander who's flown under the radar because he's come back from Tommy John. I think he's going to take off. They have Dubron, who pitched in the big leagues this year and looked very good doing so. They have Stolmy Pimentel, who is in the Futures game. Uh, you have guys like uh, Alex Wilson and Brandon Workman, uh, who have very good arms. Uh, you know, you Madison Youngner, who's more of a project. But, uh, you know, I think they do have some pitching depth there, too. And I just think they're deep and up-the-middle players. Not so much a catcher, you know, where they have guys like Ryan LaVarnway and Tim Federovich and, and, you know, Luis Exposito. You know, those guys, they don't compare at all to the Yankees' catching depth. But I, th- I think otherwise, I, I like the Red Sox position play. I like their middle infielders better than I like the Yankees. I, like I do, too. I like infielders better than I like the Yankees. It's, again, I mean... I think they're deeper. I don't think their top ten is necessarily as strong right now, or at least didn't have as good of years as a lot of the Yankees guys did. I think a lot of that, too, is that the Red Sox players, the Red Sox uh, farm system, I don't have a way of calculating this without doing hours of work, but I think they might have had the youngest full-season affiliates in of any team in baseball. And as a result, you know they didn't necessarily put up numbers that, that some of the other organizations did. No, I, I think that's fair. I, I, I still uh, – that's actually a great uh, – question for an intern to tackle and we've got an intern so i think we'll have her tackle that um that would be cool to have in the handbook but i, I know i know when i was looking at it you're just using baseball reference 
Uh, the Red Sox top five affiliates, not counting the Gulf Coast League. Three of their affiliates were the youngest in the league. And Greenville, which went to the South Atlantic League finals, was the second youngest team in their league. So, there you go. That's, that's, uh, that's yeah, just, I mean, they, they draft a lot of high school players. And, you know, I thought they had another good draft this year, too, and added a lot more talent to the organization as well. So, but, uh, well, that's like a great. I, said, I, I do think, uh, I do, you know, again, with this prospect stuff, you can argue a lot of different ways. And I do think, in terms of depth, I bet if I did the Yankees and you did the Red Sox, we might very well be arguing it from the other side. So. I think I think you're I think you're right about that. We're both more informed about those organizations than we are <laughs> about others. What do you so. think? I, mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I've ever estimated, but I mean, when you're doing a top thirty, what do what do you think you spend in terms of of, of say research plus talking to people? What ten fifteen hours? Uh, probably more than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I've never really tried to count it. So, I mean, I, I, you know, if I'm talking to people about, the, you know, it's, I think there's this misperception out there, or at least in some areas that, you know, hey, the lists come from the team or the Yankees, Red Sox tell us who to rank. Well, we talk to so many people who aren't in either organization about players, you know, in the organizations. You get so many different opinions that, you know, I'm sitting here getting. Uh, you know, five different guys tell me, you know, varying degrees that they like Kyle Weiland. Uh, and you probably aren't talking to anybody about Kyle Weiland at all. That's uh, right. Although he may have come up in the Eastern League. Or you, know, you might be talking to, you know, however many guys you talk to about Adam Warren, and he didn't intersect with any of my prospect coverage this year. So I, right. I just think you get a much better feel. You know, you, you just you hear, you know, sometimes you hear more bad things about players too, but you hear more positives about guys just because you're doing that organization. That's very true. I, I think uh, you, sometimes you almost hear more negatives. Uh, yeah, it just depends on the claiming. Like depends if you on the were doing the White Sox organization. That's right. I think you'd, you'd probably be very down on them. I mean, not that they're – I don't think they're as high on them right now anyway. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, the more focus you spend, I think it just it pulls out, you know, that's if it's it. a good organization or bad organization. The more you focus on it, I think the more, more. – that's it. You, you find a trend, and sometimes that trend is kind of, you know, just go. you just chew over it over and over and over again. You know, that's – you know, three years ago, the Twins, the first year to the Twins, or second year to the Twins, you know, where they just didn't have a number one prospect. Uh, you know, in retrospect, you could have gone with Denard Spann, could have gone with Wilson Ramos, could have gone with Joe Benson. I went with Nick Blackburn. They really didn't have anybody. You know, Denard Spann had a terrible year the year before. So uh, that was th- those are the kind of years where, it's, you know, the more I looked at it, the more I was like, I don't have a number one. And it just became kind of this – it was just this giant obstacle to get over, you know. I think sometimes that happens. Uh, last year with the Yankees, the more you asked about guys, it was like, well, he was hurt. Well, he wasn't as good as he was last year. And you just, you know, just keeps getting in your head that it was a bad year. And sometimes it's hard to shake those trends or that mentality. Can uh, it's, it's hard to pull back and get the big, the big picture. But that's why you talk to people outside the organization, not just in the organization as well. So. Jim, that's a, I think this is the longest podcast in Baseball America history. Uh, I'm about to expire. I, w- I was hungry when we began and uh, <laughs> starving now, uh, and I will have to rectify that as soon as we're done. Well, I will let that be now. Uh, it was a Baseball America podcast with John Manuel and Jim Callis, brought to you by MLB Network. Four bucks for four issues of the Baseball America magazine. Go to baseballamerica.com backslash MLB Network for that special MLB Network offer. And, Jim, thanks for all the time. Now go get some lunch. I will do that. Thanks, John. Okay. For Jim, I'm John. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.